It's Baxi's Musical Podcast. In the late 1970s, amidst all the many things that were going on in rock music at the time, punk, new wave, arena rock, you name it, there was a sudden movement that craved rock and roll in its purest and most original form. It was music that would take you back more than 20 years before the Ramones or the Sex Pistols. Early American rock and roll from the 1950s was the stuff that inspired bands like the Beatles and the Rolling Stones. This was music that would change the world. And in 1979, there were many who were thirsty to go back to it when it seemed like rock and roll was perhaps losing its way. Whether it was the resurgence of rhythm and blues, country, American roots music, or rockabilly, there were a handful of bands that decided to reach back and reconnect with what rock and roll was really all about and where it came from. Bands like X, The Gun Club, The Cramps were among those who found a way to incorporate the basics of American root music with elements of punk and combining it with things like B-movie imagery, for example. And while all three of those bands were successful in doing exactly what they set out to do, there were other musicians that craved even more. And perhaps the greatest of all of these bands was out of Downey, California, a band known as The Blasters. The Blasters were a band created by brothers Phil and Dave Alvin in 1979, combined with the great John Baz on bass and the incredibly solid Bill Bateman on drums, the Blasters were hardly just another nostalgia act. The Blasters were freaking phenomenal. This is a band that was so electrifying, so tight, and so much freaking fun that they were able to share the stage with some of the greatest blues legends in history while simultaneously sharing the same stage with such California hardcore bands like Black Flag and many others. How did they do it? By rocking that shit and rocking it hard. The Blasters had an energy that was impossible to ignore. It was a band that you simply had to respect. It was a band that was praised by critics and loved by a legion of loyal fans. The only thing that they didn't have was the mainstream success that they probably deserved, which is one of the reasons to get very excited about the upcoming reissue campaign by Liberation Hall Records. This is an effort to not only reissue the Blasters' entire back catalog, including the recently released 21-song compilation entitled Mandatory, The Best of the Blasters. The company is also getting set to reissue Phil Alvin's 1986 solo record, Unsung Stories. Simultaneously, Dave Alvin has just released a record from his own side project, The Third Mind. If you're a fan of the Blasters, this is long overdue news. And if you don't know nothing about the Blasters, you better prepare yourself because you're in for a hell of a ride. To talk about that is my guest today, bass player John Baz of the Blasters on Baxi's Musical Podcast. I got to start off first right off the bat. Uh, this would have been July 1984. Uh, the Blasters were opening up for Eric Clapton at Summerfest in Milwaukee. Oh yeah, and uh, I didn't have seats, uh, but I because you know I couldn't get seats, but I stood like close enough to the stage to to hear you guys play. And I remember thinking to myself, "How's Eric Clapton going to follow something like this? And who the hell does he think he is?" <laughs> <laughs> I was I was just floored by how you know what a tight outfit you guys were, and how and how the 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 crowd was just. 
soaking this up and, and to the point where I almost said, I want to hear Marie Marie again much more than I want to hear Lay Down Sally one more time. Those were good times. When you when I think back to you know the kind of music that was being played, 1984 and 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 earlier, there's there are other pockets of the of the country where you know that kind of music just wasn't really being played very often, other than a few you know scenes around the around the country. But when I heard it, I was like, yeah, this reminds me not only just nostalgically of of the music that my I used to listen to with my parents when when I was a kid. But it was just it was just so well done and so energetic. I mean, that's you know, to me that's the that's the stamp of the Blasters all the way from the beginning. Well, like you, we loved that kind of music too, and that's really why we uh, started playing it. And in that era, you know, uh, late seventies, early eighties, there was a everyone played with a lot of uh, bravado, a lot of energy. So that was <laughs> that's how we uh, fit in. I'd say like you know, a couple of decades later, I, I found this in a uh, in a record store. This is the uh, the complete Slash recordings uh, testament, and this is like one of those records where you know I cannot have a bad time while I'm listening to this. So it's it's been played quite a lot. You can see it's not to, in the, in the best of shape of kind of beat the living crap out of it. But I think when audiences got a chance to see what the Blasters were all about, it's almost undeniable you had to really respect what you were doing and enjoy what you were doing i mean did you get that sense that that's how the audiences were were reacting to the blasters i think so um it was a definitely a celebration when we played and it was contagious so uh yeah it it would uh, every night was good what was it about that particular you know genre of music i mean you're, you're talking the band kind of gets together you know, in 1979, you guys all kind of grew up as as next door neighbors, you and the uh, and the Alvin brothers. But what was it about that kind of music that really spoke to you guys in the band? Well, it was the um, it was music that we, like I said, we liked, we enjoyed, and we um, the highest form of praise from us was to to emulate it. To you know, we loved the bands that we loved. It was, I think, our not our responsibility, but it was. Uh, we enjoyed the music even more if we could perform it. So yeah. we studied what it was that we were playing. To me, there's, I mean, there's a there's a purity to that kind of music. You know, sometimes you know, rock music has a tendency to kind of distance itself from that. Like a like it becomes an estranged relationship when you actually come down to the roots of it all. But you know, around that time, you had other bands that were dipping their toes into that pond, you know, the Cramps, the Gun Club, X. But then there was you, but there was something different about the Blasters. And I'm not, I, I, I have my, my thoughts about it, but I would love to hear what, what you thought were the difference between the Blasters and, and those bands too. I think because it was so, uh, the, the music that we played was so eclectic. It's, it just, you couldn't, we were hard to pigeonhole. Because there was country blues, there was gospel, there was jazz, there was early rock and roll, it was rockabilly, it was everything, and it was it was really just the music we liked, and it it did fit into this really big, uh, it was a big bag of eclectic music, it, and it was like I said, it was the music that we liked, and we were we were, even though we were young, we were old enough to have seen a lot of these performers. They came through town, and we were a suburb of L.A., so everybody came to L.A., so you could see, you know, Carl Perkins came to town, and uh, of course, Elvis was do off doing arenas by then, but uh, a lot of the older guys, like, uh, and we had a really great blues club in Los Angeles called the Ashgrove, and uh, everybody 
and their brother came to that club. Johnny Guitar, Watson, Lightning, Hopkins, T-Bone Walker, Big Joe Turner, Johnny Otis, and we were there. We were, uh, you know, and I was the uh, I was the oldest guy in the group, so I had a I had a driver's license, so I could get us to L.A. <laughs> and but if I if I wasn't able to go, then uh, somebody's parent would drive them to the Ashgrove and sit outside in their car and wait for the concert to end, and then bring them back to Downey. And I assume the Allen brothers were were feeling the very same way about this, you know, to, to go see these blues legends and uh, rhythm and blues and these you know early rock pioneers must have just been. You know, a thrill must have just have, have fed you guys so much you know, well, yeah, stimulation. Well, even, even more so with the Alvin Brothers because they, Phil was a record collector, David was a music historian. So before any of these artists would even hit LA, we knew all about them, and especially the Alvin Brothers because they had studied them. And Phil would, um, being the older brother, he would sometimes go meet with the artists, like on, when they were on break or before or after the show, and uh, he would become fr- he befriended many of these uh, musicians. So they were, they were part of our circle more than just us having their records. We would go see them and then sometimes meet up with them afterwards. We became Big Joe Turner became a friend of uh, the Alvins, and when. Um, when the when Mrs. Alvin passed away, Big Joe came to the services. Wow, for the mom, yeah. There's some great pictures in the uh, in the uh, the complete slash recordings of Big Joe, and it, it it just seemed like you guys were surrounded by this all the all the time. That you know these old guys were looking at you saying these young kids are keeping this alive, I and mean, that had to be really satisfying for them to see how you were embracing this music. Right. And uh, I can tell you from a firsthand experience when you when you become an older established blues musician or any rock, any kind of music genre musician, when these younger guys come up, you really want to reach out to these kids because it's um, God, I can't really I can't put it into words, but it's (laughs) it's nice to see that people are carrying on the tradition and that they've even given you some kind of recognition for what you're doing. Because think about it. uh, When we met Lee Allen, he wasn't playing music any longer. He had already done his career had really peaked and he had, he had lived that life. And now were these young guys knocking on his door going, come on, man, bring your horn. We're having a, (laughs) (laughs) we've got this gig. It doesn't pay much, but you know, show up, you know, if you can. And it was, it, it was a, a chance for these guys to uh, continue with what it was that they had done so well decades before. The funny thing about being in, in, a, in a band is, uh, I think, you know, how many people want you to play what they want to listen to. <laughs> and, oh. you know, there's you know, plenty of people, 1978, 79, who music at the time in Los Angeles was being dominated by a much different type of uh, sound than what the Blasters were. We're putting off, but there, what was the early reaction to to you guys? Was there resistance to this, or was there like automatic acceptance once they saw what you were doing? I, I think there was uh, wasn't it wasn't resistance per se, but people were skeptical because we didn't really fit into any particular mold. We were not punk rock, but we did play with that kind of bravado when we would open a show for X or you know bands of that nature. We, because we played fast and loud (laughs) and we were, and if you think about it, uh, rockabilly music was maybe the punk rock of the fifties because it was not country and it was 
the beginnings of rock and roll, and it was a little rebellious. It was perfect. I always found it really interesting how, you know, those punk audiences and either, you know, other punk musicians had a great deal of respect for the Blasters. Like they, I mean, you, you talk about playing with, you know, bravado and, and an energy. That's all very well true. I think one of the things that, that, you know, people sometimes forget about this is that if you listen to old albums by the Ramones, they're basically mm-hmm. 1950s style melodies just set into hyperdrive. I mean, it, there's a lot of similarities between that and and that kind of music. I'd say probably you know the blasters are playing things that are a little bit more melodic, but there's not a whole lot of separation between your presentation of that music and what was being done elsewhere at the time. That I would think punks probably would kind of appreciate the energy and and the the work you're putting into this. Yeah, like X had a lot of I don't know <laughs> Chuck Berry in sure. their music. And I think the Ramones did too, and um, and so did we. And yeah. there was that common denominator. Maybe it's Chuck Berry that uh, <laughs> that ties us all. Together. I know um, a lot of bands in Los Angeles around 1980, 81 or two or so. Many of them talk about like a ch- like a change in direction with the audience. Like the like the the atmosphere changed. Maybe it just became you know more aggressive, or suddenly there were more rules imposed on, on other bands. Did you guys feel any of that? Or at that point, were you kind of just doing your own thing and, 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 and not really involved in kind of the, the punk politics of the time? We were uh, kind of a one-trick pony. We could only do what we did, and you either liked us or you didn't. We didn't change uh, anything about the performance or the persona or how we presented ourselves. We knew that, we, we knew that the only chance we had to win over an audience was to play our best and you know fast and loud ruled the day yeah i I saw this uh this really cool video the other day of you guys on the american bandstand with uh (laughs) with dick clark and and you could you know he's introducing the band he's talking to to dave and phil but you you could see the excitement in his eyes like you know this is the music that, that that started my career it's like you could tell that there was a that even he deeply appreciated what the blasters were all about because sometimes you could see when when Dick Clark would have to introduce a band that he had no interest in, but that was not the case with you guys. He seemed really interested in in what you guys were doing. Tell me about being an American bandstand. Well, it was an iconic show, so it was. Um, I I really felt like we didn't fit in. I I didn't think we were the right. It was a, a different formula uh, for us, but. Uh, you're right. Dick Clark was interested in the Blasters and our music, and he loved the Alvin Brothers. And the interviews were sincere. Uh, his questions were heartfelt. And even after or before the show or on break, he'd come over and talk to us. He loved the uh, where we came, were coming from, and he uh we did the show a couple of times yeah. and he would it was as if the conversation had never stopped it would just pick up from where it left off the last time it was it was uh, he was he was um oh gosh I, I didn't i didn't watch the show enough to know enough about american bandstand but it was a it was a classic and yeah. uh and he he seemed as if he was uh, as much a friend as he was a, a tv host I know in in a lot of band situations, particularly bands that include brothers, there's a interesting dynamic when you're in a situation like that. You know, brothers can clash; they still love each other. They don't break up because you know simply because they had a fight. 
But is like uh, the two guys who are not brothers in a band, I would think that it, it's got to be somewhat of a challenge to try to you know, manage your way through those times when things are not good, especially you know between the brothers. Because, I mean, they certainly had their issues, especially as the years went on when, when, uh, when Dave left. But you two had to kind of navigate through all that. Was, was that difficult to do? And, and can you, you tell me about the, what that was all about? Um, it was not difficult to navigate through because we were like a big family and Bill and I were like brothers, like Phil and Dave were brothers. And it was, if an argument broke out, it was just an argument and it was just another argument. And it was, and we, it's not like we argued all the time, but if it, if it, if it happened or occurred, there was usually a reason for the argument. They weren't frivolous. They were meaningful and, um, something would positive would usually come from the argument and yeah the brothers would butt heads but it was uh usually artistic it was only it would only help in the long run and and no one got hurt well that's that's good <laughs> that's good as the bass player in this band musically speaking you're tied very much to the, the drummer in uh, in the rhythm section and i think one of the things that uh, that people may not fully appreciate is what a fantastic drummer bill bateman was i mean the guy was completely solid and if you know anything about drumming and you listen to these records you you, you can hear what he's doing and when you see video of him playing you say ah that's that's what's going on tell me about about playing with him and and your relationship with bill over the years um you know i was a drummer before i was a bass player so oh, i appreciate oh yeah i appreciated bill even more than you uh, can imagine and um and then, you know, I just played with him last month at a little blues gig uh, here in Long Beach. And at one point, I really, I really, and I still appreciate Bill, but at, there was one point last month uh, during this gig where I just, it was almost an out-of-body experience. I'm standing next to the drums and I'm kind of, and I'm getting closer and closer to Bill, you know, because, you know, the bass player always stands next to the drums, usually on the hi-hat side, but in the <laughs> blasters, I was on the tom, floor tom side. I don't know why that was, but. So here I am standing next to his floor, Tom, going, yeah, this guy's great. He's always been great. He's still great. What a joy. And so for me, the music almost was blocked out for a minute, and it was just drums. That's all I listened to. And I and there were you could and you go back in in the history of uh the blasters to those early days, and I would being the bass player, I was pretty incognito stand back i'd watch the audience and um i'd look at people's faces and half the audience was okay not half maybe a third were looking at <laughs> phil another third at dave alvin but there was a big group of people that just loved watching the drummer drum yeah because he was you thought maybe he was going to fall off the stool or break a cymbal or something because it was so frantic and yet perfect for the music it was not uh, overwhelming but everything was on. Everybody played on eleven during a live show. When Dave left in in eighty five, went to go focus on his own music. Uh, it took you guys a, a good long time, almost twenty years, before you would go back into the studio. Because I, I assume partially because he was the the primary songwriter in the band. Was that the reason why there was no recording? Until what would have been like the since the, the four eleven forty four, or was there some oh. other reason? I think there were two things primarily, uh, one of which we had such a great catalog built up 
over the time uh, when David was in the band, there was such uh, a pool of material to draw from. We didn't really need to do anything new. We could just continue to play what we uh, had already recorded. And then the other reason was, and I remember Phil saying, um, I'm not going to write a song because they're just going to compare me to my brother and I'm not going to win that battle. So he he resisted writing any kind of music because he he knew the critics would be they're wait, they were waiting for it and they just would give him hell. Yeah. In, in the comparison, he wouldn't win. I was reading some some interviews, you know, about the blasters and and, it, and it's interesting to me because you know, there was there was so much that you guys had going for you. I mean, the, the, the live performances were energetic. The songs were great. You know, your performances musically were outstanding, but you had some resistance from the record companies to say, yeah, they're great, but can this kind of music actually sell records? And I find it really interesting because, you know, I'm, I'm at the age, I, you know, I graduated high school in 1984. So I'm at the age where 81, 82, all of a sudden the stray cats are coming up. And uh, this is a band out of New York. They went to London, stayed there for a while. And all of a sudden, their music, not so unlike the Blasters, is not only being sold, is being played on radio stations around the country. And it just seems that there was, a, for whatever reason, all of a sudden, minds were changed with the Stray Cats that weren't necessarily changed with the Blasters. What's, what's your thought about that? Was there any kind of, like, I don't want to say resentment or jealousy about that, but... Were you at least perplexed about, you know, why them and not so much the blasters? Um, not perplexed as much as, um, and or resentment. Uh, there was a rivalry between the two bands, uh, maybe unspoken. But the we, we knew at the very beginning that it was an uphill struggle to get our music uh, out to the masses because we weren't a pop band we weren't popular we were popular within the genre that we uh, addressed but um it was not mainstream music when i heard them the first time and this has been before i heard the blasters i remember you know like parents of friends of mine saying "Ooh, this is all for, this is the stuff i went to high school with and and you know as i got to know the blasters a little bit and and, and to some of the other bands we talked about the cramps and x and yeah, you know, the Gun Club. It's like, yeah, there, I mean, there was something about that music that really touched a chord. It wasn't. It wasn't just simply nostalgia. It, it was something kind of visceral that that people connected to. I I think you can see that. You know, when you look at like uh, you know the the live videos that are out on on YouTube, and they you know they'll show the crowd and they're dancing. They may be like a punk crowd, but they're dancing like their parents danced back in the fifties. It's just something so infectious and in people's DNA to hear that music. I just think it's so interesting that what is considered to be successful and what is considered to be not given the, a fair shake. And I think that's like one of those examples where you just go, you know, yeah, the Stray Cats were good, but have you heard the Blasters yet? And you know, that's, that's the way I kind of look at that. Yeah, true. Um, but again, it was, uh, we, we weren't a pop band and we didn't reach the masses. I can't tell you why, because I don't think we were that much different than, oh gosh, I I would sometimes, describing the band, I would say we were a, a mix between the, the Clash and Chuck Berry or Creedence Clearwater and Chuck Berry or Creedence Clearwater and something else. But And so, you know, very popular band. 
And what was the difference? I don't know. Maybe just the timing. Yeah. Maybe the presentation, where we came from, how I, I don't know what it is. I know there's been this 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 really and I'm really excited about this because I think this is like you know, one of those catalogs that definitely needs a, a second look and, and more attention. But there's now this this big effort to reissue the Blasters music. The latest compilation, Mandatory, the Best of the Blasters, has 21 songs. A lot of classics out there. There's uh, some other stuff on the record, too. Tell me what else is included. There it is. Now you're holding on to it. What? <laughs> <laughs> Tell me what else is included in that. Um, in this release yeah. or what's coming up? Well, in, in, the- in that release first, and we'll get to some of the others in, in a second. This is basically everything uh, we did in the Dave Alvin era, starting with Rolling Rock Records and uh, then with Slash and Warner Brothers. And so there are um, samples from all, there are um, songs from all of the releases from that era. And uh, we will eventually be putting out more uh, songs, album reissues uh, over the next couple of years that include everything that we've ever done in that era. And that includes American music all the way through Hardline and and, and even the, the later records too? Um, well, anything that was on uh, Warner Brothers slash okay. Warner, uh, Rolling Rock was our first release back in 1980. So anything uh, in that era. Liberation Hall is uh, is the, the record company that's been working on, on these reissues. They've been doing some really interesting stuff lately. There's a whole series of, of albums that are being released of old performances from Mabuhay Gardens in San Francisco. I've had a chance to talk to a couple of people that, uh, that have had stuff released. And I think it's really cool to kind of go back and, and listen to this stuff and, and give it a second chance. Not that it was ever dismissed, but, you know, like to rediscover what was really, really great. Because so many times, you know, records, either for whatever reason, don't get the exposure or the distribution or whatever, you know, that may be. You, you've, you've talked about this not being popular music, but you did have an audience and you did have a pretty loyal one. Do you think, you know, back then, if you talked about, you know, Slash Records, had had they been able to give you enough exposure that it would have been, it, the, the fortunes of those records would have been a little bit stronger? Or do you think that, that you were just, you know, relegated to the genre you were in and because you weren't a pop band, that that was about as good as you could have expected at the time? I think it's a little of both. And you did hit upon something. It might have been a little bit of Slash not knowing how to promote or maybe not having those tools at hand. They were a pretty small label, but they had a a big impact. They had a great roster of artists on their label, which, uh, which I think opened a lot of doors. But still, compared to most labels of that era, they were... They were uh, small and didn't have the reach and the manpower and the budget to promote like other labels did. And I'm not saying that's the difference between us and other bands on, on that were on other labels, but it, um, it certainly had to have come into play. In these reissues that we're, we're talking about, um, is there a lot of uh, material out there that's, that has not been released? Will there be bonus tracks on these on these releases? Uh, yes, um, we're talking about putting something out now that was originally just six songs that live in London EP. And, and I think that was, even though it was a six song release, I think that the total number of songs at that show is 23. And so that would, we're thinking of putting all of those out, uh, as well. And then, uh, there are, there are a few outtakes, uh, from 
each session, each album had uh, songs that didn't make the cut. Probably going to put a few of those out as well. well. One of the things I'm curious about, you know, when it comes to to reissuing, you know, this music is is why now? Why why is it taken to 2023 before this stuff gets you know re released? Is it has it been a long process to to get it going, or what would be the background on this? I can't speak to that because I don't know the process involved in getting a label interested in doing this. We we didn't we didn't have the ability to do it ourselves. We needed to partner up with a label and Liberation Hall has shown the interest. So it was really them knocking on our door to uh, get this whole project started. So I know that um, the band has played periodically. I know that uh, you know right now Phil's health is not great and he's not in a position to be to be playing. But but you have stayed pretty active over the years too. You've certainly done plenty of music between 1985 and and now. Tell me a little bit about that and what piques your interest today, all these years later. Oh man, um, well I I still love the music I loved growing up, and that hasn't changed. And it's primarily you know Americana. But when I started playing bass in the Blasters, I really didn't know much about the instrument. And what I played was more or less memorized. I didn't understand much of what it was I was doing. And then um, started playing with this this guy named Top Jimmy. I don't know if you've heard of Top Jimmy and the Rhythm Pigs, but they were legendary around L.A. But they were a blues-based band. And um, when I joined his group, I really had to learn how to play bass because it wasn't <laughs> it wasn't blaster songs that had been memorized over the years. I was having to, you know, think on my feet. And then uh, from that, it's just, it, the blues is, once you learn how to play blues, it's pretty simple. It's really just three chords. And um, I say it's simple. There are some subtleties to it that it's, it's, I think I'm good at the subtleties. So that's maybe why my phone rings and I get the gigs. <laughs> but a lot of the gigs I do are just, it's, it's just, I'm, playing in a bar somewhere i'm not going on tour or headlining or making records but you, know, you you i mean you talk about some of the, those nuances with with blues and i think the thing that, that that separates the blues from a lot of other genres is you're playing with a lot more maybe it's more emotional of, of a genre than than many others like you're actually there's a level of having to put in your heart into those blues to really kind of make it authentic i guess in, in a way that's one of the things that uh, the blasters were able to do there's, there was clearly enough you know, heart in the way you guys played that, you know, it's very applicable to rhythm and blues and to other, you know, other kinds of music. Would you agree with that? Well, no, I do wholeheartedly. And, um, I tell people, um, I may not know what it is that I do, but I, I have, I play with, uh, I'm a, I, I'm a feel player. I yeah. feel whatever it is you're playing. I, I will play what's appropriate. I may not know. I may not be able to, uh, tell you the theory behind what it is I'm doing, but it's but what I do will be appropriate for the genre of the music. And that's, and that was the blasters in a nutshell. We would pick up on, oh, <laughs> I haven't really thought about this, so it's hard to put into words, but we would, uh, there's a difference between country blues and pre-war and post-war blues. And um, it, it, it's all blues. It's all rock and roll. It's all music, but it's, uh, there are, pockets of this music that are different than other you know you can go from the west coast to the east coast and it it changes it you may not hear it at first but it there's a difference and you can you can just span a couple of years in uh, someone's career and you can see how they evolve and how uh 
where you start is not where you end all the time uh, with a with the style that you play. I would imagine when you're playing with a guy like Bill Bateman and you're both kind of field players, although you know he's you know very technical too, that that must make things just so much more fun when you're both settling into a pocket like that, playing music that you're both you know feeling on an emotional level. And you know, like I said, I, I used the word visceral before, but that really is kind of true. In the rhythm section of a band, when you two lock in, I mean, there's really no, there's, there's really nothing better than that. Well, especially with Bill, because he really is, um, he's more of a pre-war blues uh, aficionado. And we have a little group right now called the Blue Shadows, a fun band, good players. It's Bill's band. He's the leader. And uh, <laughs> it's the style of music that we play is, um, I don't want to say old fashioned, but it's, it's, it's not the modern post-war Chicago blues it's yeah. pre-war so it's a lot more crude and the drums really reflect reflect that and he drives the band how often do you get a chance to talk to the Alvin brothers well we don't talk that much but we do text <laughs> um I, I went and visited Phil last month and had a good uh, chat with him uh David and I have been going back and forth texting this morning in fact um Bill Bateman I'll probably call later this afternoon and see what's up when it comes to these reissues do you get the sense that the other guys are feeling the same way you are but you know grateful that it's it's coming out grateful that it's going to be you know distributed and and that this music does get us you know a, a second set of ears um we we haven't had that conversation specifically but i m my sense is we all we all have a little different take on this thing Bill's very practical about these things. He doesn't care much either direction. It's uh, the music's been done. If you can put it out again so that you can give it to the audience, that's good and fine. David's super excited about this because he liked to have the catalog. Um, it's not that these songs don't exist. You can probably find them almost anywhere. It's just that they're all coming together in one place on one label. So they're going to be much easier to find. They're being promoted It'll give us the kind of attention that uh, has not been around for the last couple decades. So that's a good thing. Bill Bateman's perspective is, I don't know, but I, I know that he's <laughs> he's behind it and, and loves the fact that it's coming out. But I don't know what, um, we haven't had a talk about it, yeah. but he's, I'm sure he's tickled. What's the time frame of the uh, of the next release? Oh, I don't know if it's American music, uh, but I think there's, uh, the, I think maybe Feb, a couple months into the new year, something may be coming out. Yeah, John, it's great to talk to you. I mean, like I said, I've, I've listened to the Blaster since 1984, kind of to the side of the stage, and uh, and have been impressed for a long, long time. What a fun, fun band the Blasters were. And it's a real pleasure to talk to you and get a get a sense of, uh, of what to expect. Yeah, I look forward to what's uh, coming out. It was great talking with you as well. The name of the new compilation by the Blasters is called Mandatory, the Best of the Blasters, with much more on the way from Liberation Hall Records. Thanks for listening. I hope you enjoyed it. If you did, feel free to like it, share it, review it, and tell all your friends about it. And be sure to check out our regular updates on Facebook, Instagram, and TikTok. You can also email me at backsatrock102.com. I'd love to know what you think. And thanks again for listening to Baxi's Musical Podcast.